When I was a young man, I served as counselor to a wise district president in the church. He tried to teach me. One of the things I remember wondering about was this advice he gave. When you meet someone, treat them as if they were in serious trouble, and you will be right more than half the time. I thought then that he was pessimistic. Now, more than 40 years later, I can see how well he understood the world and life. As time passes, the world grows more challenging, and our physical capacities slowly diminish with age. It is clear that we will need more than human strength. The psalmist was right, but the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ gives us help in knowing how to qualify for the strength of the Lord as we deal with adversity. It tells us why we face tests in life, and even more importantly, it tells us how to get protection and help from the Lord. We have trials to face because our Heavenly Father loves us. His purpose is to help us qualify for the blessing of living with Him and with His Son, Jesus Christ, forever in glory and in families. To qualify for that gift, we had to receive a mortal body. With that mortality, we understood that we would be tested by temptations and by difficulties. The restored gospel not only teaches us why we must be tested, but it makes clear to us what the test is. The Prophet Joseph Smith gave us an explanation by revelation. He was able to record words spoken at the creation of the world. They are about us, those of the spirit children of our Heavenly Father, who would come into mortality. Here are the words. And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. That explanation helps us understand why we face trials in life. They give us the opportunity to prove ourselves faithful to God. So many things beat upon us in a lifetime that simply enduring may seem almost beyond us. That's what the words in the scriptures, ye must endure to the end, seemed to, me, to mean to me when I first read them. It sounded grim, like sitting still and holding onto the arms of the chair while someone pulled out my tooth. It can surely seem that way to a family, depending on crops when there is no rain. They, they may wonder. How long can we hold on? It can seem that way to a youth faced with resisting the rising flood of filth and temptation. It can seem that way to a young man struggling to get the training he needs for a job to support a wife and family. It can seem that way to a person who can't find a job or has lost job after job as businesses close their doors. It can seem that way to the person faced with the erosion of health and physical strength which may come early or late in life for them or for those they love. 
But the test a loving God has set before us is not to see if we can endure difficulty. It is to see if we can endure it well. We passed the test by showing that we remembered him and the commandments he gave us. And to endure well is to keep those commandments, whatever the opposition, whatever the temptation, and whatever the tumult around us. We have that clear understanding because the restored gospel makes the plan of happiness so plain. That clarity lets us see what help we need. We need strength beyond ourselves to keep the commandments in whatever circumstance life brings to us. For some it may be poverty, but for others it may be prosperity. It may be the ravages of age or the exuberance of youth. The combination of trials and their duration are as varied as are the children of our Heavenly Father. No two are alike. But what is being tested is the same at all times in our lives and for every person. Will we do whatsoever the Lord our God will command us? Knowing why we are tested and what the test is tells us how to get help. We have to go to God. He gives us the commandments, and we will need more than our own strength to keep them. Again, the restored gospel makes plain the simple things we need to do, and it gives us confidence that the help we need will come if we do those things early and persistently, long before the moment of crisis. The first, the middle, and the last thing to do is to pray. The Savior told us how. One of, one of the clearest instructions is in 3 Nephi. Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, ye must watch and pray always, lest ye enter into temptation. For Satan desireth to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Therefore, ye must always pray unto the Father in my name, and whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. Pray in your families unto the Father, always in my name, that your wives and your children may be blessed. So we must pray always. Another simple thing to do which allows God to give us strength is to feast on the Word of God. Read and ponder the standard works of the Church and the words of living prophets. There is a promise of help from God that comes with that daily practice. Faithful study of scriptures brings the Holy Ghost to us. The promise is given in the Book of Mormon but it applies as well to all the words of God that he has given and will give us through his prophets. Behold, I would exhort you that when ye shall read these things, if it be wisdom in God that ye read them, that ye would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam even down unto the time that ye shall receive these things and ponder it in your hearts. And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, 
in the name of Christ if these things are not true. And if he shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, ye may know the truth of all things. We should claim that promise not only once, nor only for the Book of Mormon. The promise is sure. The power of the Holy Ghost is real. It will come again and again. And one overriding truth it will always testify to is that Jesus is the Christ. That testimony will draw us to the Savior and to accepting the help He offers to all who are being tested in the crucible of mortality. More than once He has said that He would gather us to Him as a hen would gather her chickens under her wings. He says that we must choose to come to Him in meekness and with enough faith in Him to repent with full purpose of heart. One way to do that is to gather with the saints in His Church. Go to your meetings even when it seems hard. If you are determined, He will help you find the strength to do it. A member wrote to me from England. When her bishop asked if she would accept a call to teach early morning seminary, he told her she'd better pray about it before she accepted. She did. She accepted. When she met the parents for the first time, the bishop stood beside her. She announced that she felt the program should go to five days a week. Some parents looked doubtful. One person said, they won't come. They'll vote with their feet. Well, the doubt was half right. The students did vote with their feet, but their attendance in those cold and dark morning hours is now above 90 percent. That teacher and her bishop believed that if the students would start to come, they would be strengthened by power more than their own. It came. That power will protect them when they go to places where they will be the only Latter-day Saints. They will not be alone nor without strength because they accepted the invitation to gather with the Saints when it was not easy. That strength is given to those who are older as well as the young. I know a widow more than 90 years of age. She is in a wheelchair. She prays as you do, pleading for help to solve problems beyond her human power to resolve. The answer is a feeling in her heart. It draws her to keep a commandment, and behold, ye shall meet together oft. So she finds a way to get to her meetings. People who attend there have told me, we are so glad to see her. She brings such a spirit with her. She partakes of the sacrament, and she renews a covenant. She remembers the Savior, and she tries to keep His commandments. And so she takes His Spirit with her, always. Her problems may not be resolved. Most of them come from the choices of others. And even the Heavenly Father, who hears her prayers and loves her, cannot force others to choose the right. But He can send her to the safety of the Savior and the promise of His Spirit to be with her. And so I am sure that she will, in the strength of the Lord, 
pass the test she faces because she keeps the commandment to gather often with the saints. That is both the evidence that she is enduring well and the source of her strength for what lies ahead. There is another simple thing to do. The Lord's Church has been restored, and so any call to serve in it is a call to serve Him. The bishop in England was so wise, he asked the woman to pray about her call to serve. He knew what answer she would receive. It would be an invitation from the Father and His beloved Son. He knew what she has learned by responding to the call from the Master. In His service, the Holy Ghost comes as a companion to those who try to do the best they can. She must have felt that as she stood before the parents and when she saw the students vote with their feet. What looked hard, almost impossible under her own power, became a joy in the strength of the Lord. When she reads and ponders over the scriptures and prays to prepare for those classes, she knows that the Savior has asked the Father to send her the Holy Ghost just as He promised His disciples He would at the Last Supper, when He knew what trials they would face and that He must leave them. He did not leave them comfortless. He promised them the Holy Ghost, and He promises it to us in His service. So whenever the invitation to serve comes, take it. It brings with it help to pass the tests far beyond those of that call. Now, not all have formal calls, but every disciple serves the Master by bearing testimony and being kind to people around them. All have promised in the waters of baptism to do that, and all will gain the companionship of the Spirit as they persist in keeping their commitments with God. In the Master's service, you will come to know and love Him. You will, if you persevere in prayer and faithful service, begin to sense that the Holy Ghost has become a companion. Many of us have for a period given such service and felt that companionship. If you think back on that time, you will remember that there were changes in you. The temptation to do evil seemed to lessen. The desire to do good increased. Those who knew you best and loved you may have said, you have become more kind, more patient. You don't seem to be the same person. You weren't the same person because the Atonement of Jesus Christ is real. And the promise is real that we can become new, changed, and better. And we can become stronger for the tests of life. We then go in the strength of the Lord, a strength developed in His service. He goes with us, and in time we become His tested and strengthened disciples. You will then notice a change in your prayers. They will become more fervent and more frequent. The words you speak will have a different meaning to you. By commandment, we always pray to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. But you will feel a greater confidence as you pray to the Father, knowing that you go to Him as a trusted and proven disciple of Jesus Christ. The Father will grant you greater peace and strength in this life, and with it a happy anticipation of hearing the words when the test of life is over, Well done, thou good 
and faithful servant. I know that God the Father lives. I testify that He hears and answers our every prayer. I know that His Son, Jesus Christ, paid the price of all of our sins and that He wants us to come to Him. I know that the Father and the Son want us to pass the tests of life. I testify that they have prepared the way for us. Through the restoration of the gospel in the last days, the way is made clear for us. We can know the commandments. We have the right to claim the promise of the companionship of the Holy Ghost in the true Church of Jesus Christ. And we can endure well in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Recently, President Hinckley was overheard saying to a young newly married couple, what a wonderful time to be alive and to be in love. His optimistic outlook and nature are reassuring. They foster hope in an otherwise gloomy world. These are, however, more than mere expressions of a positive personality. A glimpse into the past will help illustrate what I mean. In the early 12th century, the cleric, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, a man of intense faith, penned the following words, Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see, and in thy presence rest. These lines speak of hope and joy and peace, though written in a time when much of the world lay blanketed in ignorance, impoverishment, and despair. These words capture the calm assurance that always accompanies the testimony of Jesus. This same assurance gives buoyancy and optimism to our beloved prophet and to all the faithful followers of Christ. What then is this testimony of Jesus? How can it be acquired? And what will it do for those who receive it? The testimony of Jesus is the sure and certain knowledge revealed to the spirit of a person through the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the living Son of the living God. Because the testimony of Jesus is God-given, it stands preeminent and is essential to a happy life. It is the fundamental principle of our religion, and all other things pertaining to our faith are appendages to it. President Hinckley reminds us, It is the privilege, it is the opportunity, it is the obligation of every Latter-day Saint to gain for himself or herself a certain knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Redeemer of all mankind. That testimony is the most precious possession that any of us can hold. I am satisfied that whenever a man has a true witness in his heart of the living reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, all else will come together as it should. Nurtured through righteous living, this testimony of Jesus becomes the governing force in all that a person does. Furthermore, it is available to everyone, for God is no respecter of persons. Acquiring such a testimony does not, however, come without personal effort. One must desire to know, study to learn, live to merit, and pray to receive. When so pursued in humility and faith, the knowledge comes, 
And with this knowledge comes both the sweet assurance that all will be well and the inner strength to make it so. The desire to know is the first step in one's quest for a testimony of Jesus. The scriptures counsel, If ye will awake and arouse your faculties, even to an experiment upon my words, and exercise a particle of faith, yea, if ye can do no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you until ye believe in a manner that ye can give place for a portion of my words. The testimony of Jesus requires that the honest seeker study to learn. Said the Lord, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. From cover to cover the Holy Bible teaches and testifies of Christ. He is Jehovah of the Old Testament, Messiah of the New. The Book of Mormon, another testament of him, was compiled, preserved, and brought forth for the express purpose of convincing Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. Concurrent with desire and study, one must live to merit such a testimony. The person who does what Jesus says comes to know who Jesus is, said he. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Finally, the testimony of Jesus comes to those who pray to receive it. Ask, and it shall be given you, is the invitation that leads the humble and penitent to such knowledge. With this knowledge, the seeker also gains an understanding of the origin and purposes of life, opening vistas that would otherwise remain hidden. For example, the Lord's life did not begin in Bethlehem, and ours did not begin at birth. In the premortal world, he stood as the stalwart, unwavering advocate of God's eternal plan for his children, and we were there. In the great war in heaven, it was by the power of the firstborn that Lucifer was cast out, and we helped champion the cause. Through God's only begotten Son, the worlds are and were created, and we can therefore achieve our divine potential. As President J. Reuben Clark has said, it was not a novice, not an amateur, not a being making a first trial that came down in the beginning and made this world. And if you think of this galaxy of ours having within it from the beginning perhaps one million worlds, and multiply that by the number of millions of galaxies that surround us, you will then get some view of who Jesus Christ is. In awe we exult with the ancient cleric, Jesus, the very thought of thee, with wonder fills my breast. As the literal offspring of God and being born of a mortal mother, the premortal Christ became the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. Though the fullness of His majesty, messiahship, and godhood came not at first, He continued from grace to grace until He received the fullness, and so can we. Angels attended Him. The Holy Ghost descended upon Him. The woes of all mankind were carried by Him, and our sins can be forgiven through Him. This Jesus, who is called Christ, wrought out a perfect atonement for all mankind by His incomparable life, His suffering in Gethsemane, the shedding of His blood, His death upon the cross, 
and his glorious resurrection. He conquered the grave, and because of him, so will we. He is the greatest being to be born on this earth. He is Lord of lords, King of kings, the Savior, the bright and morning star. His name is the only name under heaven whereby we can be saved. He is the Anointed One. And again we exclaim, Jesus, the very thought of Thee with reverence fills my breast. As the world could not overcome Him in the meridian of time, so the world cannot do without Him in our time, and neither can we. His purpose is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Hence He came to the Prophet Joseph Smith, restored the priesthood, reestablished His Church, and again proclaimed the plan of redemption. Joseph saw Him, conversed with Him, and has left us this transcendent poetic account of Him. I beheld round the throne holy angels and hosts, and sanctified beings from worlds that have been in holiness worshiping God and the Lamb forever and ever. Amen and amen. And now, after all of the proofs made of him, by witnesses truly by whom he was known, this is mine last of all, that he lives. Yea, he lives and sits at the right hand of God on his throne. And I heard a great voice bearing record from heaven. He's the Savior and only begotten of God. By Him, of Him, and through Him the worlds were all made, even all that careen in the heavens so broad, whose inhabitants too, from the first to the last, are saved by the very same Savior as ours, and of course are begotten God's daughters and sons by the very same truths and the very same powers. We have with us today the Lord's duly ordained apostles. True to their sacred commission as special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world, they declare, Jesus is the living Christ, the immortal Son of God. He is the great King Emmanuel who stands today on the right hand of the Father. He is the light, the life, and the hope of the world. His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. God be thanked for the matchless gift of His divine Son. Jesus, the very thought of Thee fills my heart with inexpressible joy. It controls every part of my being. My life, my loves, my ambitions are molded, enlivened, and given purpose because I know that Thou art the Christ, the Holy One. I thank God for my testimony of Jesus, and pray that all may be likewise blessed. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In earlier years, the Brethren often reported their missions in General Conference. I realize this is not to, this is 2004 and not 1904, but I wish to invoke the spirit of that earlier practice and reflect on some of the wonderful things Sister Holland and I are experiencing in Latin America. In doing so, I hope to make a general application to all of you, wherever you may live or serve. First of all, I would like to thank every missionary who has ever labored in this transcendent Latter-day undertaking we have been given. 
The rolling forth of the restored gospel is a miracle in every sense of the word. And not the least of the miracle is that a significant portion of it rolls forward on the shoulders of 19-year-olds. As we have seen your sons and daughters, grandsons and granddaughters, and in some cases your parents and grandparents, faithfully laboring in Chile, I have pictured the tens of thousands of others like them we've met all over the world. Clean, clear, bright-eyed missionaries, laboring two by two, have become a living symbol of this Church everywhere. They themselves are the first gospel message their investigators encounter. And what a message that is. Everyone knows who they are, and those of us who know them the best love them the most. I wish you could meet the sister called to serve with us from her native Argentina. Wanting to do everything possible to finance her own mission, she sold her violin, her most prized and nearly sole earthly possession. She said simply, God will bless me with another violin after I have blessed his children with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wish you could meet the Chilean elder who, living without family in a boarding school, happened upon a Book of Mormon and started reading it that very evening. Reminiscent of Parley P. Pratt's experience, he read insatiably, nonstop through the night. With the breaking of day, he was overwhelmed with a profound sense of peace and a new spirit of hope. He determined to find out where this book had come from and who had written its marvelous pages. Thirteen months later, he was on a mission. I wish you could meet the marvelous young man who came to us from Bolivia, arriving with no matching clothing and shoes three sizes too large for him. He was a little older because he was the sole breadwinner in his home, and it had taken some time to earn money for his mission. He raised chickens and sold the eggs door to door. Then, just as his call finally came, his widowed mother faced an emergency appendectomy. Our young friend gave every cent of the money he had earned for his mission to pay for his mother's surgery and post-operative care, then quietly rounded up what used clothing he could from friends and arrived at the MTC in Santiago on schedule. I can assure you that his clothing now match, his shoes now fit, and both he and his mother are safe and sound, temporally as well as spiritually. And so they come from your homes all over this world. Included in such a long list of dedicated servants of the Lord is an increasing number of senior couples who make an indispensable contribution to this work. How we love and need couples in virtually every mission of this Church. Those of you who can, put away your golf clubs. Don't worry about the stock market. Realize that your grandchildren will still be your grandchildren when you return, and go. We promise you the experience of a lifetime. Let me say something of the marvelous members of the Church themselves. In the reorganization of a rather far-flung stake recently, I felt the Lord's prompting to call a man to the stake presidency who, I had been told, owned a bicycle 
but no automobile. Many leaders across the Church don't have cars. But I was nevertheless worried about what that might mean for this man in this particular stake. In my terminally ill Spanish, I pursued the interview <laughs> and then said, Hermano, no tiene un auto. With a smile and not a second's hesitation, he replied, No tengo un auto, pero yo tengo pies. Yo tengo fe. I do not have a car, but I do have feet, and I do have faith. He then said he could ride the bus, or ride his bicycle, or walk. Como los misioneros, he smiled, like the missionaries. And so he does. Just eight weeks ago, I was holding a mission district conference on the island of Chiloé, an interior location in the south of Chile that gets few visitors. Imagine the responsibility I felt in addressing these beautiful people when it was pointed out to me that a very elderly man seated near the front of the chapel had set out on foot at five o'clock that morning, walking for four hours to be in his seat by nine o'clock for a meeting that was not scheduled to begin until 11 o'clock. He said he wanted to get a good seat. <laughs> I looked into his eyes, thought of the times in my life when I had been either too casual or too late, and thought of Jesus' phrase, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The Punta Arenas Chile stake is the Church's southernmost stake anywhere on this planet, its outermost borders stretching toward Antarctica. Any stake farther south would have to be staffed by penguins. No comparison to people you know. For the Punta Arenas Saints, it is a 4,200-mile round-trip bus ride to the Santiago Temple. For a husband and wife, it can take up to 20 percent of an annual local income just for the transportation alone. Only 50 people can be accommodated on the bus, but for every excursion, 250 others come out to hold a brief service with them the morning of their departure. Pause for a minute and ask yourself, when was the last time you stood on a cold, windswept parking lot adjacent to the Straits of Magellan just to sing with, pray for, and cheer on their way those who were going to the temple, hoping your savings would allow you to go next time? One hundred ten hours, seventy of those on dusty, bumpy, unfinished roads looping out through Argentina's wild Patagonia. What does 110 hours on a bus feel like? I honestly do not know. But I know that some of us get nervous if we live more than 110 miles from a temple or if the services there take more than 110 minutes. While we are teaching the principle of tithing too, praying with and building ever more temples for just such distant Latter-day Saints, 
Perhaps the rest of us can do more to enjoy the blessings and wonder of the temple regularly when so many temples are increasingly within our reach. And that leads me to my final point. For the Church at large, we have so many things to associate in our minds with the visionary ministry of President Gordon B. Hinckley, including, perhaps especially, the vast expansion of temples and temple building. But I dare say, for those of us on this rostrum, it is likely that we will remember him at least as emphatically for his determination to retain in permanent activity the converts who joined this Church. No modern prophet has addressed this issue more directly, nor expected more from us in seeing that it happen. With a twinkle in his eye and a hand smacking the table in front of him, he said to the Twelve recently, Brethren, when my life is finished and the final services are concluding, I am going to rise up as I go by, look each of you in the eye, and say, How are we doing on retention? This subject brings us full circle, linking the kind of true deep conversion the missionaries are striving to bring with the greater commitment and devotion being seen in wonderful members all over the Church. Christ said, and I invoke Elder Nelson's witness, I am the true vine, and ye are the branches. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. Now, abide in me is an understandable and beautiful enough concept in the elegant English of the King James Bible. But abide is not a word we use much anymore. So I gained even more appreciation for this admonition from the Lord when I was introduced to the translation of this passage in another language. In Spanish, that familiar phrase is rendered permaneced en mí. Like the English verb abide, permanecer means to remain, to stay. But even gringos like me can hear the root cognate there of permanence. The sense of this, then, is stay but stay forever. That's the call of the gospel message to Chileans and everyone else in the world. Come, but come to remain. Come with conviction and endurance. Come permanently for your sake and the sake of all the generations who must follow you, and we will help each other be strong to the very end. He who picks up one end of the stick picks up the other my marvelous mission president taught us in his very first message to us. And that's the way it's supposed to be when we join this, the true and living Church of the true and living God. When one joins the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we board the good ship Zion and sail with her wherever she goes until she comes into that millennial port. We stay in the boat through squalls and stills, through storms and sunburn, because that's the only way to the promised land. This Church is the Lord's vehicle for crucial doctrines, ordinances, covenants, and keys 
that are essential to exaltation, and one cannot be fully faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ without striving to be faithful in the Church which is its earthly institutional manifestation. To new convert and longtime member alike, we declare in the spirit of Nephi's powerful valedictory exhortation, Ye have entered in by the gate, but now, after ye have gotten into this straight and narrow path, I would ask if all is done. Behold, I say unto you, Nay, press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, and endure to the end. Behold, thus ye shall have eternal life. Jesus said, Without me ye can do nothing. I testify that that is God's truth. Christ is everything to us, and we are to abide in Him permanently, unyieldingly, steadfastly, forever. For the fruit of the gospel to blossom and bless our lives, we must be firmly attached to Him, the Savior of us all, and to this church which bears His holy name. He is the vine that is our true source of strength and the only source of eternal life. In Him we will not only endure, but will prevail and triumph in this holy cause that will never fail us. May we never fail it, nor fail Him, I pray, in the sacred and holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Each time we experience security checks at an airport, we are asked to show photographic identification. We understand the need and comply knowing that it is necessary and helpful. But as evidence of my true identity, I submit my photograph somewhat apologetically. If someone were to examine my passport photo and say that it is a good likeness, I would know it's time to go home. <laughs> but I feel apologetic for another reason. The photo shows nothing about my roots and branches. They are important parts of my identity. Could you tell much about a tree? By looking at a photograph only of its trunk? No. Roots and branches of trees provide much more information. So it is with us, both personally and with our religion. Personal roots are really important. Sister Nelson and I know a family that proudly displays evidence of their ancestral roots with large paintings portrayed on the outside walls of their home. Beautiful artwork there depicts distinctive patterns of identity for both of their family lines. When relatives gather around a new baby, one inevitably hears comments such as, She has red hair just like her mother, or 
He has a dimple in his chin, just like his father. Each of us has ancestral roots. Each man has received some genetic markers that are just like those of his father. Each woman has received some genetic markers that are just like those of her mother. In addition, each of us has received other genetic gifts that make us unique. Because we have a spirit as well as a physical body, we also have spiritual roots that go way back. They shape our values, our beliefs, and our faith. Spiritual roots guide our commitment to the ideals and teachings of the Lord. Children have a natural desire to emulate the examples of their parents. Generally, boys incline toward the attitudes and work of their fathers. Girls aspire to live as their mothers do. And you parents, don't be too surprised if sometime along the way your children become better than you. Personal roots, physical and spiritual, merit gratitude. For my life, I am grateful to my Creator as well as to my dear parents and progenitors. I try to honor them by learning of them and serving them in the temple. Parents have a responsibility to share knowledge of their personal roots with their children and grandchildren. Learning their history together unifies a family. We also need to know the roots of our religion. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, though officially organized in 1830, has been restored from roots that also go way back. Truths from previous dispensations have now been gathered, amplified, and clarified. For us as parents and teachers, an excellent teaching resource is the Articles of Faith. Written by the Prophet Joseph Smith, this document refers to many doctrines that undergird our religion. It mentions the Godhead, moral agency, the fall of Adam, and the Atonement of Jesus Christ. It spells out the foundational principles and ordinances of faith, repentance, baptism, and the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. It addresses matters of priesthood authority and organization. It notes as sacred scripture the Holy Bible, the Book of Mormon, and an open canon of continuing revelation from God. And it proclaims the actuality of the gathering of Israel. What a treasure house of truth is this precious document as we teach of our religious roots. Other revealed doctrines at the root of our religion include the creation, the resurrection, the law of tithing, prayer, and the consummate blessings of the temple. 
As we teach these doctrines, we realize how very firm is our foundation. As we apply these doctrines in our lives, the roots of our religion become part of our own spiritual strength. Converts need to strengthen their religious roots. President Gordon B. Hinckley has taught that each convert needs a friend, a responsibility, and nurturing by the good word of God. With such roots to support them and their children, precious converts become pioneers for their own families to follow. Unfortunately, some members of faithful families drift away because their own roots are weak. My heart aches when I learn of those who turn from the faith of their pioneer predecessors. One professionally acclaimed friend and gifted son of faithful ancestors has allowed one doctrinal doubt to dim his view of the fullness of the gospel and drive an ever-widening wedge between him and the temple. Another acquaintance, a sweet sister with illustrious pioneer progenitors, now politely states that she is not a practicing member of the Church. Have these dear people become so fashionable that they have forgotten their roots? Have they forgotten what the Restoration really means and what it cost? Have they forgotten their pioneer heritage and their lineage as declared in patriarchal blessings? For a few fleeting favors now, would they forget and forfeit eternal life? Oblivious to the roots that have blessed them, they no longer enjoy the spiritual sparkle of saints engaged in the work of Almighty God. Their noble ancestors were brought to the knowledge of the truth according to the spirit of revelation and of prophecy and the power of God. Their forebearers were converted unto the Lord and never did fall away. How will those progenitors feel about the drift of their descendants? Their disappointment will likely turn to sorrow, for fruit detached from roots cannot long survive. The Lord issued this solemn warning. After ye have been nourished by the good word of God, will ye reject these words of the prophets? And will ye reject all the words which have been spoken concerning Christ and the power of God and the gift of the Holy Ghost and make a mock of the great plan of redemption which has been laid for you? The resurrection will bring you to stand with shame and awful guilt before the bar of God. I plead with each of us to heed that sacred warning. Just as our roots determine to a significant degree who we are, our branches are also an important extension of our identity. Personal branches bear the fruit of our loins. Scriptures teach, By their fruits ye shall know them. 
earlier in life, Sister Nelson and I often met young people who said they felt like they knew us because they knew our children. Now we are greeted fondly by those who know us because they know our grandchildren. In much the same way, our religion is known by the fruit of its branches. Recently, I met with governmental officials from a land far from here who were deeply impressed with the Church and its efforts throughout the world. They liked our teachings about the family and wanted copies of our proclamation to the world and guidebooks for family home evening. They wanted to know more about our welfare program and humanitarian help. We complied as we could and then shifted from what we do to why we do it. I explained with an analogy to a tree. You are attracted by various fruits of our faith, I said. They are plentiful and powerful. But you cannot savor this fruit unless you know the tree that produces it. And you cannot understand the tree unless you comprehend its roots. With our religion, you cannot have the fruits without the roots. This they understood. Fruits from the branching tree of the gospel include love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith. President Harold B. Lee once said, Beautiful, luscious fruit does not grow unless the roots of the tree have been planted in rich, fertile soil and unless due care is given to proper pruning, cultivation, and irrigation. So, likewise, the luscious fruits of virtue and chastity, honesty, temperance, integrity, and fidelity are not to be found growing in that individual whose life is not founded on a firm testimony of the truths of the gospel and of the life and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fruits of the gospel are delicious to those who obey the Lord. We pursue an education knowing that the glory of God is intelligence. The blessing of tithing comes by paying tithing. Rewards are reaped from the word of wisdom by obedience to it. We learn from experience born of gospel living that prayer, honoring the Sabbath day, and partaking of the sacrament protect us from the bondage of sin. We shun pornography and immorality knowing that the peace of personal purity can be ours only as we live according to the laws of the gospel. The Lord gave this promise and commandment, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. I am the vine, ye are the branches. Simply summarized, Life's greatest blessings will come to us if our love of Jesus Christ is rooted deeply in our hearts. Personal identity is much more than a passport photograph. 
we also have roots and branches. Divinity is rooted in each of us. We all are the work of our Creator's hand. We are eternal beings. In premortal realms, we brethren were foreordained for our priesthood responsibilities. Before the foundation of the world, women were prepared that they may bear children and glorify God. We came to this mortal experience to acquire a body, to be tried and tested. We are to form families and be sealed in holy temples with joy and loving relationships that endure eternally. To these everlasting truths we are personally rooted. Branches of our families and of the gospel bear fruit to enrich our lives. God's work and His glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man can become ours. We can dwell with Him and with our families forever. Those blessings will be granted to the faithful in His own way and time. God lives. Jesus is the Christ. Joseph Smith is the revelator and prophet of this last dispensation. The Book of Mormon is true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Lord's kingdom, established once again upon the earth. President Gordon B. Hinckley is his living prophet. If rooted to these truths, the fruit of our branches will remain. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, both within my view and assembled throughout the world, I seek an interest in your prayers and in your faith as I respond to the assignment and the privilege to address you. More than 40 years ago, when President David O. McKay extended to me a call to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, he warmly welcomed me with a heartfelt smile and a tender embrace. Among the sacred counsel he extended was the declaration, There is one responsibility that no one can evade. That is the effect of one's personal influence. The calling of the early apostles reflected the influence of the Lord. When he sought a man of faith, he did not select him from the throng of the self-righteous, who were found regularly in the synagogue. Rather, he called him from among the fishermen of Capernaum. Peter, Andrew, James, and John heard the call, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They followed Simon, man of doubt became Peter, apostle of faith. When the Savior was to choose a missionary of zeal and power, he found him not among his advocates, but amidst his adversaries. Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor, became Paul the proselyter. The Redeemer chose imperfect men to teach the way to perfection. He did so then. He does so now. He calls you and me to serve Him here below, and sets us to the task He would have us fulfill. 
the commitment is total. There's no conflict of conscience. By following that man of Galilee, even the Lord Jesus Christ, our personal influence will be felt for good wherever we are, whatever our callings. Our appointed task may appear insignificant, unnecessary, unnoticed. Some may be tempted to question, Father, where shall I work today? And my love flowed warm and free. Then he pointed out a tiny spot and said, Tend that for me. I answered quickly, Oh, no, not that. Why, no one would ever see. No matter how well my work was done, not that little place for me. And the word he spoke, it was not stern. Art thou working for them or for me? Nazareth was a little place, and so was Galilee. The family is the ideal place for teaching. It is also a laboratory for learning. Family home evening can bring spiritual growth to each member. The home is the basis of a righteous life, and no other instrumentality can take its place nor fulfill its essential functions. Such truth has been taught by many presidents of the Church. It is in the home where fathers and mothers can teach provident living to their children. Sharing of tasks and helping one another sets a pattern for future families as children grow, marry, and leave home. The lessons learned in the home are those that last the longest. President Gordon B. Hinckley continues to stress the avoidance of unnecessary debt, the fallacy of living beyond one's means, and the temptation to let our wants become our necessities. The Apostle Paul's exhortation to his beloved Timothy provides the counsel that will enable our personal influence to find lodgment in the hearts of those with whom we associate. He says, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. When I was a boy, our family lived in the 6th, 7th ward of the Pioneer Stake. The ward population was rather transient, which resulted in an accelerated rate of turnover with respect to the teachers in the Sunday school. As boys and girls, we just become acquainted with a particular teacher and grow to appreciate him or her when the Sunday school superintendent would visit the class and introduce a new teacher. Disappointment filled each heart, and a breakdown of discipline resulted. Prospective teachers, hearing of the unsavory reputation of our particular class, would graciously decline to serve or suggest the possibility of teaching a different class where the students were more manageable. We took delight in our newly found status and determined to live up to the fears of the faculty. <laughs> One Sunday morning, a lovely young lady accompanied the superintendent into the classroom and was presented to us as a teacher who requested the opportunity to teach us. We learned that she had been a missionary and loved young people. Her name was Lucy Gurch. She was beautiful, soft-spoken, interested in us, 
She asked each class member to introduce himself, and then she asked questions, which gave her an understanding and insight into the background of each. She told us of her girlhood in Midway, Utah, and she described that beautiful valley. She made its beauty live within us, and we desired to visit the green fields she loved so much. When Lucy taught, she made the scriptures actually live. We became personally acquainted with Samuel, David, Jacob, Nephi, Joseph Smith, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gospel scholarship grew. Our deportment improved. Our love for Lucy Gurch knew no bounds. We undertook a project to save nickels and dimes for what was to be a gigantic Christmas party. Sister Gertz kept a careful record of our progress. As boys with typical appetites, we converted in our minds the monetary totals to cakes, cookies, pies, and ice cream. This was to be a glorious event. Never before had any of our teachers even suggested a social event like this was to be. The summer months faded into autumn. Autumn turned to winter. Our party goal had been achieved. The class had grown. A good spirit prevailed. None of us will forget that gray morning when our beloved teacher announced to us that the mother of one of our classmates had passed away. We thought of our own mothers and how much they meant to us. We felt sincere sorrow for Billy Devonport in his great loss. The lesson this Sunday was from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 35. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. At the conclusion of the presentation of a well-prepared lesson, Lucy Gertz commented, on the economic situation of Billy's family. These were depression times, and money was scarce. With a twinkle in her eyes, she asked, How would you like to follow this teaching of our Lord? How would you feel about taking our party fund and, as a class, give it to the Devonports as an expression of our love? The decision was unanimous. We counted so carefully each penny, placed the total sum in a large envelope. A beautiful card was purchased and inscribed with our names. This simple act of kindness welded us together as one. We learned through our own experience that it is indeed more blessed to give than to receive. The years have flown. The old chapel is gone a victim of industrialization. The boys and girls who learned, who laughed, who grew under the direction of that inspired teacher of truth have never forgotten her love or her lessons. Her personal influence for good was contagious. A general authority whose personal influence was felt far and wide was the late President Spencer W. Kimball. He really made a difference in the lives of countless individuals. When I was a bishop, the telephone rang one day, and the caller identified himself 
as Elder Spencer W. Kimball. He said, Brother Monson, in your ward is a trailer court, and in a little trailer in that court, the smallest trailer of all, is a sweet Navajo widow, Margaret Bird. Would you have your Relief Society president visit her and invite her to come to Relief Society and to participate with the sisters? We did. Margaret Bird came and found a warm welcome. Elder Kimball called on another occasion. Bishop Monson, he said, I've learned that there are two Samoan boys living in a downtown hotel. They're going to get in trouble. Will you make them members of your ward? <laughs> I found these two boys at midnight, sitting on the steps of the hotel, playing ukuleles and singing. They became members of our ward. Eventually, each of them married in the temple and served valiantly. Their influence for good was widespread. When I was first called as a bishop, I discovered that our record for subscriptions to the Relief Society magazine in the 6th-7th Ward had been at a low ebb. Prayerfully, we analyzed the names of individuals whom we could call to be magazine representative. The inspiration dictated that Elizabeth Keechi should be given the assignment. As her bishop, I approached her with the task. She responded, Bishop Monson, I'll do it. Elizabeth Keechi was of Scottish descent, and when she replied, I'll do it, one knew she indeed would. She and her sister-in-law, Helen Ivory, neither more than five feet tall, commenced to walk the ward, house by house, street by street, and block by block. The result was phenomenal. We had more subscriptions to the Relief Society magazine than had been recorded by all the other units of the state combined. I congratulated Elizabeth Keechi one Sunday evening and said to her, Your task is done. She replied, Not yet, Bishop. There are two square blocks we have not yet covered. When she told me which blocks they were, I said, Oh, Sister Keechi, no one lives on those blocks. They are totally industrial. Just the same, she said. I'll feel better if Nell and I go and check them ourselves. <laughs> On a rainy day, she and Nell covered those final two blocks. On the first one, she found no home, nor did she on the second. She and Sister Ivory paused, however, at a driveway which was muddy from a recent storm. Sister Kichi gazed down the driveway which was adjacent to a machine shop, perhaps a hundred feet. She looked and there noticed a garage. This was not a normal garage, however, in that there was a curtain at the window. She turned to her companion and said, Nell, shall we go and investigate? The two sweet sisters then walked down the muddy driveway, all of forty feet to a point where the entire view of the garage could be seen. Now they noticed a door, which had been cut into the side of the garage, which door was unseen from the street. They also noticed that there was a chimney with smoke rising from it. Elizabeth Keechi knocked at the door. A man 68 years of age, William Ringwood, answered. They then presented their story 
concerning the need of every home having the Relief Society magazine, William Ringwood replied, You better ask my father. 94-year-old Charles W. Ringwood then came to the door and also listened to the message. He subscribed. <laughs> Elizabeth Kishi reported to me the presence of these two men in our ward. When I requested their membership certificates from church headquarters, I received a call from the membership department at the presiding bishopric's office. Sister Jack said, Are you sure you have living in your ward Charles W. Ringwood? I replied that I did, whereupon she reported that the membership certificate for him had remained in the lost and unknown file of the presiding bishopric's office for the previous 16 years. On Sunday morning, Elizabeth Keechee and Nell Ivory brought to our priesthood meeting Charles and William Ringwood. This was the first time they had been inside a chapel for many years. Charles Ringwood was the oldest deacon I had ever met. His son was the oldest male member holding no priesthood I had ever met. It became my opportunity to ordain Brother Charles Ringwood a teacher and then a priest, finally an elder. I shall never forget his interview with respect to seeking a temple recommend. He handed me a silver dollar, which he took from an old, worn leather coin purse, and said, This is my fast offering. I said, Brother Ringwood, you owe no fast offering. You need it yourself. He replied, I want to receive the blessings, not retain the money. He responded, It was my opportunity to take Charles Ringwood to the Salt Lake Temple and to attend with him the endowment session. Within a few months, Charles W. Ringwood passed away. At his funeral service, I noticed his family sitting on the front rows in the mortuary chapel. But I noticed also two sweet women sitting near the rear of the chapel, Elizabeth Keechy and Helen Ivory. As I gazed upon those two faithful and dedicated women and contemplated their personal influence for good, the promise of the Lord filled my very soul. I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and truth unto the end. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. There is one, above all others, whose personal influence covers the continents, spans the oceans, and penetrates the hearts of true believers. He atoned for the sins of mankind. I testify he is a teacher of truth, but he is more than a teacher. He is the exemplar of the perfect life, but he is more than an exemplar. He is the great physician, but he is more than a physician. He is the literal Savior of the world, the Son of God, 
the Prince of Peace, the Holy One of Israel, even the risen Lord, who declared, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. I am the light and life of the world. I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth, and I am he who was slain. I am your advocate with the Father. As his witness, I testify to you that he lives. In his holy name, even Jesus Christ the Savior, amen.